John 5, verses 1 through 15. As you're turning there, uh, let me just say how glad I am that things uh, went uh, so well last week, and I'm glad that uh, it sounds like you were blessed. Uh, if I, Brother Craig's uh, preaching last week, and I hear that you were left with an incredible appetite, and hopefully that was an appetite for the Word of God and not anything else, or at least more for the Word of God than physical appetite or food. But I'm glad that uh, you were blessed by it. John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, in you there is life. There is fullness and there is wholeness. We thank you because you have provided that to us through our faith in your incredible work on the cross. And we praise you because you continue to feed us through the living and abiding word of God. So we pray that you would feed us this morning with the word of your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're all familiar with karma. It's uh, the term comes from Eastern religion, Hinduism, Buddhism. And it's uh, kind of this, this spiritual principle that the actions that we see, that we do right now, well, they, they come back to us later on, or the virtue of those things that we do come back later on. So if it's good, then it, we receive good. If it's bad, then we receive bad. Right? I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if you have ever believed in karma, but Oprah Winfrey did a, an interview once, uh, I think with Stephen Colbert, and she was asked, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And she quotes uh, Psalm 37, I think verse 2 or 3, where it says, delight yourself in the Lord and, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Um, I think you can look at it for yourself. I think this might be a video or at least they have a manuscript of it, but um, this, I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with how she interprets 
that particular psalm. And the reason I mention it is because everybody knows who Oprah Winfrey is, right? I know she's an incredible lady, and a lot of people listen to her. And so it's tragic when she offers his own interpretation of Psalm 37. And of, of course, a lot of people listen. And so among many other things that she says about the psalm, this particular psalm, she says she interprets it as a sort of karma. She kind of divorces or abstracts the person of the Lord and focuses on, being, on doing good. So if you are, so what she specifically says is that if you are a force for good, then you will receive good in return. And she specifically says that this is like karma. And that's, according to the Bible, that is completely wrong. As Christians, we don't believe in karma, right? I mean, just, just reading the Bible and also in personal life, right? Just because you do something good doesn't mean you will receive good in return. I mean, there are many times where we do something good and we don't even receive a thank you, right? We might do something good and might receive something awful in return, I mean, if you, I mean, just how does that square up with the person of Job, right, who was, a, who was a righteous and blameless man and suffered greatly? Or even how do you square that up with Jesus Christ, right? You could say that he was a force for good. I mean, he was preaching the gospel of eternal life. He was healing people. And he ends up being crucified on the cross. So as we walk through the passage this morning, I'm going to, later on, I'll clue you, I'll, I'll tell you what the point of the passage is, but I want to take a little different direction from the main point of the passage. And so we're going to walk first through the, the first point, which is science and faith, and then we're going to talk a little bit more towards the end of this passage about how the Lord operates in the world, particularly with, with man. You know, does God work in this sort of karma-like manner or in, some other, or in some other way or some other operation or some other method? So, in John chapter 5, we have another sign from the Lord. Now, in the book of John, there are seven signs. The one in our passage is actually number four. Now, Jesus did plenty of other miracles, right, that are not written in the book of John, but there are seven specific miracles that are sort of uniquely, uh, uniquely uh, focused on or separated from the others. And the signs are intended, the signs are usually miraculous, and they normally have some kind of uh, some a discourse or extended comments attached to the sign. And so the, the signs are intended to drive the narrative forward, but even more so, they're intended to interpret for us the person of Jesus Christ. And they're intended also to, to stimulate and to enhance faith. So, so far, we have Jesus turning water into wine. That's one sign. We have Jesus cleansing the temple. The third sign is uh, the healing of the official son. And now this is the fourth sign the healing of the invalid. Now, the healing of the official son, and even the, the healing of the official son is sort of a, a little exception to the rule because there isn't a, a discourse attached to it, but the reason why it's considered a sign is because at the end of that narrative, it tells us that this was a sign, specifically the second sign that Jesus did in Cana, that first sign being the turning of water into wine. 
which also didn't have extended comments attached to it. Now, signs are important, right? I think you know this because signs are meant to be followed. You're, they're there for you to pay attention to. I mean, even just think about the signs that you see on a regular basis. You probably came across a lot of signs on your way to church this morning. So at intersections, you'll normally see a stop sign, which is cautioning you to, to stop. Right, because if you drive through the intersection, well, then you might hit another vehicle who's also trying to cross the intersection. Or if, there's, if you're going into a neighborhood, sometimes you'll see a, a bright yellow diamond sign with a, with a child on it, cautioning you that this is a crowded neighborhood and that there might be children playing in the yard or in the streets, and so you ought to slow down and be cautious and be aware. Otherwise, if you're not, well, that you might accidentally hit someone on the road. Right, the signs are there for us to be followed. They are important. They're there to protect our lives and the lives of our children and to protect others from danger. So signs are important. When, and so when Jesus performs these signs, he's asking not only the people who are witnesses of these signs, but he's also asking the readers to pay careful attention because they're intended to tell us something about Jesus Christ. So then, so then we have the, the healing of the invalid, the fourth sign. The passage says that after this was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Sick, sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So that this event takes place in Jerusalem, specifically outside of the city walls. Specifically, the, it's called the Sheep Gate, and most likely a reference to one of the gates in the, in the walls of the city. So imagine the city, and it's surrounded by large walls. And in this particular gate, the Sheep Gate, about a couple miles, two or three miles away from that gate, there was a pool. Actually, there was it's actually two pools. And each pool had a portico on each of the four corners with one in the middle separating the two pools, probably separating the men from the women. And each pool was about a foot, uh, the length of a football field. Now, depending on which version or translation of the Bible that you have, it might say that there was an angel stirring up the pool, which is, why, which is why it attracted so many invalids, because it was a stirring of the pool by this angel that led to healing. Now, to be a little technical, uh, I don't think that that particular detail is authentic, only because in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible, that is the original copies of the Bible, that wasn't in it. And that became a later edition. But it doesn't mean that, that there was probably some sort of legend about an angel stirring the pool that led to the healing of people when they, when they went into the water. Right? So people probably have believed that that was true. But most likely, I think, that there was during the earliest hours, there was probably some minerals in the water that when somebody went into the water first, 
well, then they sucked up most of the minerals that, that uh, promoted better healing or alleviation from pain, physical pain. But most likely, it did not lead to complete healing and restoration. And it is here that Jesus comes across this particular individual. Now, maybe Jesus asked around about this particular man who had been an invalid for 30 years. Maybe he just supernaturally knew that this man had been an invalid for 38 years. I think it's, I want to say it's the latter, not the former. And I'll, I'll tell you why later. But this particular individual, for reasons unknown to us, become the object of Jesus' attention. For whatever reason, Jesus focuses on him when there are plenty of other invalids in that area. And this man was in that particular situation for 38 years. That's 38 years. Can you, can you imagine that? 38 years. And the man probably had no family because it tells us he had no one to put him into the pool. So he couldn't get himself, himself there. 38 years of not having, of having, of being able to, to provide for himself, to get a job, to provide a living for himself. 38 years of having to sleep outside in a mat. 38 years of having to beg for money and for food and water and shelter. 38 years of hopelessness. Especially as he's watching people get into the pool day by day and with no hope of getting in there himself when he can get himself there, when he thinks that this is probably his only means of hope and restoration. And that hope being taken away day after day. And 38 years, after 38 years, suddenly a man approaches him and asks him, do you want to be healed? And in hopelessness, the, inv the invalid responds, sir, I've got no one to put me into the pool. And whenever I try to get myself there, somebody always gets to the pool before I do. But then Jesus commands them, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And instantaneously, the man gets up and he walked and he's fully restored. I mean, it's incredible. Maybe the invalid injured his legs, or maybe just one of them or both of them, we have no idea. But for whatever reason, right, he couldn't, his legs weren't functioning to get himself into the pool. Maybe he had to drag himself everywhere he wanted to go. I mean, after 38 years, those legs would have been weak, decrepit, just skin and bones. And all of a sudden, at Jesus' word, the, the, the muscles and the fat and the tendons are restored. And this man sort of like has a new pair of legs. Maybe he has like Michael Jordan legs or maybe he has Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson legs. I have no idea. But this man has a new pair of legs and he's able to get up and walk away. So Jesus does something much better that this pool could never do. This is little theme, kind of a little aside, but there's a little theme. This is kind of the theme of water that's been in, in, uh, in these first several chapters of the book of John. Jesus turned water into wine, which is a symbolism of celebration, that Jesus, the king, has come, and the kingdom has come, and so now it is a time of celebration. And he provides a new wine, which is the new covenant of grace in his blood. Jesus offers a Samaritan woman living waters, which is his saying that he is the source of eternal life. And now Jesus shows that water for bathing and for purification and maybe perhaps some semblance of healing cannot compare to the complete healing and wholeness that comes in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus made this invalid whole again. 
Jesus did not only give this man a new pair of legs, but he gave him a new life. This man can now make a living. Now he can find a good woman and get married and have kids. This man has hope again. His life just got a whole lot better. And this sign is intended to show us something about Jesus Christ. It's intended to stimulate faith. It's to get us to ask some questions about Jesus. And also about the healed man in his unique situation. Which then brings us to the second point. Authority and faith. So continuing the passage, or in verse 9, it says that that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, in your bed. But he answered, the man who healed me, that man, said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So as, the, as this healed man is now filled with joy, and he walks to who knows where, probably skipping, probably jumping, probably even frolicking for all we know, and all of a sudden, show up the religious teachers and put a rain on his parade. Interestingly, Jesus suddenly appears to this man, drawn to him for reasons we don't know, and he heals him. And now suddenly, the religious teachers are also drawn to this same man, but not out of compassion, but because he's breaking the law. The kind of the antithesis to Jesus. Now, the law of Moses did forbid a person from working in their profession on the Sabbath. But to not be able to pick up a mat is a stretch that even the law of Moses never intended. But as a Jew, I presume that this healed man knew the rules, but maybe because in his joy he forgot about the rules, or maybe in his joy he didn't care. I probably wouldn't care either. Regardless, He's not wanting to get in trouble. I mean, his life was just made better. He's not wanting to get in trouble. So he's kind of, he's on the defensive and he says, well, the man who healed me, he told me to take up my bed and walk. And so that's what we would normally call ratting him out. This man actually rats out Jesus. And so he deflects right to Jesus and deflection is successful. The, the religious teachers are no longer concerned with the healed man but he's, they're now concerned more so with the man who seems like told this man to violate the law. Now, we're going to see next week that, that they show greater interest in the one who told the healed man to violate. Well, Jesus didn't exactly tell him to violate the law. It just seems that way. But in their, in, in their minds, that individual is not just opposing the law of Moses, but he also seems to be opposing their own authority and perhaps even showing a cavalier attitude towards the law. And it's not till a little later that they find out that the individual who told this man to carry up his mat on the Sabbath, and the person who healed this man on the Sabbath, is the same person who cleared the temple. In this particular sign, Jesus is showing that his authority is greater than that of the, of the Pharisees, is greater than the law of Moses, and that his authority is even greater than Moses. Matthew 12, 8 says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Then Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Jews, the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. 
Jesus said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful or it is permissible to do good on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never intended to be a specific time when no good was done whatsoever. The point of the Sabbath rest was never about complete inactivity, but rather focusing on leisure activities. It was also about the quality of the time and not the quantity of time of inactivity. Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, is not seeking to dismiss or to abrogate the law, but to uphold it in the way that it was originally intended. And that is to be used as a time of wholeness. Luke 13.10 tells that Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully strain herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which, you are, which our work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? The religious teachers were always angered because Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, because he showed concern for people on the Sabbath. And we're going to continue on the theme of Jesus' authority next week. But let's conclude with one last look at the healed man. Verse 13 says, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now I find it a little odd that after receiving a new pair of legs, having his hope restored, having his whole life situation, his whole life situation changed, that I get that there was probably a crowd and it was hard to continue to connect, but the man doesn't seem to make any effort to find out who is the man who healed him. All it tells us is that he walks away and then runs off and is confronted by the Pharisees, no idea of the name of the man who healed him, and then he ends up at the temple, and then it is Jesus again who finds this, part, this specific man who told him to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Now, this is for a little later, but do yourself a favor and read John chapter 9. Because very similar situation, another man healed on the Sabbath, but two very, very different reactions, two different conversations happen. And so it's interesting to see the differences. The healed man in John 5 appears to show no interest in Jesus. And even when he finds out who Jesus is, he doesn't stay to ask him any more questions, right? The signs are intended to stimulate faith. But he doesn't heed the sign. Instead, he runs off in order to clear his name, and he tells the Jews, hey, it was Jesus who healed me and told me to take up my bed and walk on the Sabbath. 
The signs are intended to stimulate faith in Jesus, but it appears that this miracle does not have this particular effect on this individual. Actually, it seems like it seems to have the, the opposite effect. At least in this moment in time, this man showed the same flawed faith that we read about in, at the end of chapter 2, when, Jesus, when it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to the individuals who believed in him. The problem is never with the miracle. The problem, problem always, without a doubt, is always the person or the people. Ephesians 4.18 says that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's because of the hardness of heart that one will not fail to interpret the sign like they should. John 3.19 tells us that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, that is Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light or rather than Jesus because their works were evil. Ultimately, the reason why the signs will not stimulate faith in, in, a, in a person such as this healed man is because he will not accept the sign for what it is, and that is as a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. But here's the kicker. Because Jesus, Jesus leaves the healed man with a sort of caution, with a sort of ominous statement. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is why I think it was through Jesus' supernatural knowledge that he knew that this man was an invalid for 38 years. Because Jesus, in this statement, seems to indicate that the reason why this individual was an invalid for 38 years is because of past sins. Does this then mean that God punishes people in the present for sins of the past? And the answer is both yes and no. In the Old Testament, we certainly see God's punishing his people for their sins, specifically for their breaking God's commands. That is why the Israelites were left to wander in the desert for 48, for 40 years. That is why God sent venomous snakes into their camp when they were grumbling about God and his leaders to devour the people. It is why Moses was prohibited from entering the promised land when he struck the, wa- the rock, when he should have spoken to the rock to draw out water. We see this in the New Testament as well. In Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says, The man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. So Ananias committed a sin. He and his wife had a land. They sold it for a land. And what happens is that they kept part of the proceeds, which is fine. They had they could do that. There's nothing sinful about doing that. But the sin was that they told that the church, when they gave to the church, they said that we sold the land and all that we have received, we gave it to the church. And so they lied 
because they actually instead kept back for the proceeds. They had been honest and said, we have sold the land for this amount and had given this much to the, to the apostles or to our brothers and sisters. But they didn't do that. They lied. And the Lord struck him dead. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul instructs the church to take the Lord's Supper in the right manner. And that those who don't, he says in 1 Corinthians 11.30, that this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Another example, Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because the country depended on the, on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the wrath of God is presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what that wrath looks like is handing over or giving man over to more and more sin. However, before we think that this is how God always responds to sin or that this is the one way that God always operates, let's not forget the example of Job, right, who was a holy and righteous and blameless man and yet suffered. Or also consider Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what Jesus is saying here is that those who suffered in this way, it's not because they were worse sinners that they suffered in this way, but the point is that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or John chapter 9, I mentioned that earlier, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered him, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Right? It's not that this man sinned or that his parents sinned that resulted in his being blind from birth. There was no direct correlation between sin and that person's individual circumstances. So in other words, Jesus is saying that there isn't always this direct correlation between present suffering and past sins. In the healed man's case, Jesus indicates that if he continues to live in sin, though, that something worse is going to happen to him. Something worse. I mean, what could be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? What could be worse than having to beg and grovel for 38 years? What could be worse than having no hope and having to beg for food and shelter for 38 years? Jeez, what in the world could be worse than that? I'll tell you what could be worse than that. That is to suffer the eternal judgment of God. That is worse. As wonderful as it is that this man was made whole again, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not that great. 
I mean, just think of it. This man could be skipping and frolicking with, all, with his new legs, and all of a sudden, all he has to do is trip over a rock, break his ankle, or break his leg, and he's right back where he was, where he was before. Just because he was healed does not make him invincible. But Jesus was gracious. He took pity on this man's poor state and he healed him. So taking Jesus, so taking this man's example, his life, and taking Jesus' statement all into consideration, we cannot know if God operates in one singular way towards his people. Trials and suffering are not always because of sins committed in the past. But I will say that all suffering is related to sin. Because God never intended for us to experience suffering in this world. It was once a perfect place where man enjoyed an unhindered and wonderful relationship with his maker. But when Adam sinned, well, then there came sin into the world. And along with sin, sin dragged also suffering and trials and persecution and suffering and disease and death. When Time Magazine reached out to various scholars and philosophers, asking them the question, to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton responded to Time Magazine, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours, Chesterton. There's no such thing as karma. The reason why there is sin and evil in the world is because of us. It's not because of God or some spiritual force. Right? We are the ones who threw the boomerang of sin, but God makes, it, makes sure that it comes back to us, whether it's in this life or in the next. What we need to take away from this man's story is that this is the encouraging part, that while we, while you and I are deserving of God's eternal punishment, God is gracious in not giving us what we deserve. The only reason that this man was healed was because Jesus had compassion on him. It is not because this man deserved it. It is not because Jesus saw something in this man that was worth saving. Jesus just simply had compassion on him, on his poor state, and he healed him and made him whole. In our sin, we have thrown the boomerang, but the Lord caught it before it came back to us. Or actually, he didn't catch it, but Jesus stood in our place and took it for us. The Lord is gracious to us and not giving us what our sins deserve, but instead he placed that punishment upon his son, Jesus Christ. He took the punishment that we deserve. And through Jesus and because of, of Jesus Christ, we, are never, we never have to be worried or fearful of experiencing something worse because Jesus already took that for us. And how about the rest of the world? The Bible tells us that God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and that he may sends his rain on the just and the unjust. The reason why God continues to allow the sun to rise in a sin-filled world is because God is patient and he's not wanting anyone to perish by giving all people everywhere time to seek him and to repent. So while man continues to shake his fist at God, God has not given man what he deserves. 
But the same statement that Jesus made to this healed man applies to you also who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I don't know what trials you're going through, what sufferings you've been experiencing in your life, whether or not they're caused by sin or not, which is by mistakes that you have made, but the Bible is clear. Something much worse is coming, and that is God's everlasting judgment. So I encourage you to not be like the healed man who didn't show any interest at all in knowing the person who healed him. Know the Lord Jesus Christ through his word. Place your faith and trust upon him, and you will be spared of that worst outcome. And dear believer, you should always be amazed that the Lord did not give to you what your sins deserved. Instead, you've been adopted into his family. You received the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of your eternal life with Jesus Christ. You've been given riches and and inheritance in heaven. You've been given hope. You've been given new life. The mercy of God means not only have you been spared from what you deserve, but also that you've been given much more than you could ever earn. So what's, what's troubling you this morning? What's causing you to lose sleep at night? What are the things that are worrying you? What are those things that are just, you just can't get out of your mind? I'm not intending to make light of your situation or your distress or even your suffering. But the Lord wants to remind you this morning that you can have joy and you can have peace and you can have hope because the Lord has spared you from a fate that is worse than you can even imagine. In his mercy, for reasons that we will never know, he was drawn to you. He shone the light of the gospel in your heart that you believed in Jesus Christ, so that you may have hope, so that you may receive his forgiveness, so you may receive his grace, so you may receive eternal life. And so he wants you to find rest. He wants you to find joy. He wants you to find contentment and remembering that and not on your present circumstances. Jesus not only has the authority that supersedes the law of Moses and that of the scribes and Pharisees, but he also has the incredible authority to grant you and I eternal life and forgiveness of our sins. The question is, are you going to marvel and be amazed and rejoice today and every single day that the Lord did not give you what your sins deserved, but that he spared you from that worst outcome, and he has given you much more than you could ever earn? I hope that you will always remember that and be encouraged by it. Let's pray. Lord, you are wonderful. You are merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping mercy for thousands, keeping mercy for those whom you have chosen, those whom you were drawn to. We thank you for this incredible mercy. We thank you for lavishing upon us your incredible grace. Lord, and sometimes we forget that. We focus on the things that are happening around us and even to us, things that may be difficult and hard to bear. But help us to not let those things overshadow our hope in Jesus Christ. 
Let the joy of the Lord always be in our heart so that even as we go through trials and suffering, that we may, that we may continue to have this hope and this joy that only comes from the gospel, a message that tells us that you have spared us from what we deserve and have given us much more than we could ever earn or imagine or ask for. We thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.